invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. We're in the midst of a series of laws pertaining to judges, uh, kings, uh, priests, and prophets within Israel. And last week we looked at laws or instruction for judges and the establishment of a basic system of justice within the land. And today we're looking at the laws for kings. So Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 and uh, through to the end of the chapter. Let's hear the word of the Lord. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Well, what does a free society look like? And why don't free societies seem to last for very long? On the one hand, there's the threat of tyranny, threat of oppression. This is what the Israelites experienced under the leadership of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a capricious tyrant who acted more like a god than a king. On the other hand, there's the constant danger of anarchy. So on the one hand, there's the danger of tyranny, and on the other hand, there's the danger of anarchy. And this is what Israel experienced during the time of the judges, when we read again and again that Everyone in Israel did what was right in their own eyes. They did whatever they wanted. And in that day, there was no king in Israel. In contrast to tyranny on the one hand and anarchy on the other, a free society is defined by the rule of law. And this is what Moses calls for essentially in Deuteronomy 17 where even the king himself, the most powerful individual in the nation, is required 
to obey. He is required to submit to the final authority of God himself. In light of that, I want us to consider this passage in two parts. Uh, First, the gift of a king, because it is a gift. And secondly, the rule of law. Now, to appreciate the gift of a king, we've got to go back to the beginning, to God's original design for his rule on earth. It, It requires us to really come to terms with the fact that God has never given up on his original plan. According to Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, God has always intended to realize his reign upon earth, specifically by means of human beings created after his own image and likeness. Adam and Eve were called to serve as God's vice regents or royal representatives, and God does not give up on this original design for his earthly dominion. God's purpose has always been to exercise his rule through a man and his bride ruling over creation together. In fact, what we learn in the gospel is that God is so committed to realizing this original plan exercising his dominion by human means, that God became one. God became a human being. That's how serious God is about his design. He will rule the earth through a human king and his royal bride. And God is so committed to this that he took on human flesh. So make no mistake, there's nothing wrong with the desire For a man to sit on the throne. This was God's divine design from the very beginning. The promised gift of human kingship. It was among some of the most ancient promises that God gave to his people. Long before God made a promise to King David that one of his sons would sit upon the throne forever. God said to Abraham, In Genesis 17, kings shall come from you. And later in Genesis chapter 35, verse 11, God said to Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. There you can hear echoes of Genesis 1.28. He goes on to say, and a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from your own body. And so the royal laws that we are looking at here in Deuteronomy 17 this morning are really a part of this bigger progressive unfolding of God's ancient plan and promise to give his people a man who would sit upon the throne. Kingship, we know as the story unfolds, kingship within Israel is is eventually corrupted. It was never a a mere concession, however, to human pleading. Sometimes I think we're prone to just jump ahead to when the people uh, wanted Saul as king. They wanted to be like the nations around them, and they wanted a king who looked formidable and impressive by external uh, appearances alone. A king who would operate like the nations around them. And so we're led to think, oh, this is just a bad thing from the start. But no! 
It wasn't. It was God's plan from the beginning to establish a king, a man after his own heart. And God never gives up on his original plan. So let's look at how this unfolds in the law of Moses. Look at how this generous gift of a king is legally codified in in verses 14 and 15. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And here we discover that the greatest danger Israel faced was not the desire for a king. It was the desire for the wrong kind of king. It was the desire for a worldly king and a kingdom that is of this world. A king, as Moses describes, like all the nations around. You see, God's people were supposed to be different. They're supposed to be set apart But they could not be different unless their king was different. And boy, is this king different. But how are we supposed to understand this peculiar king? What are the distinguishing features of biblical kingship? I think these features have a lot to teach us about leadership, biblical leadership in general, But what are the distinctive characteristics of biblical kingship? First, notice that the ruler of God's people does not initiate the process by which he ascends to the throne. He is instead chosen by God, appointed by the Lord. He does not put himself forward or promote himself. There's no political jockeying. There's no... uh, you know, political candidate who's trying to advertise himself and win your vote. Instead, the king comes to power by means of a process that begins with a request from the people in verse 14, and then it terminates with God's choice in verse 15. This is very, very different from the way people typically come to power in the world around us today, isn't it? There's there's no jockeying for, for position. The, the story of David is a perfect example of this, right? David did not put himself forward for the position of king over Israel. Instead, one day while he's tending his father's flock, uh, a prophet just seemed to come out of nowhere. What must have seemed like out of nowhere to him. Samuel shows up and anoints him as king. It was a divine choice, a divine election. David didn't choose or promote or anoint himself. He was chosen and anointed by God to serve as king. And second, notice that according to verse 15, the king must not be a foreigner, but a fellow Israelite. At this time, under Moses, under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, when the people of God are, are largely limited to the physical, geographical nation-state of Israel. We're given this law that the king must not be a foreigner. This is not an example of ethnocentrism, but a legal protection to prevent God's people from becoming like 
the nations around them. Because as goes the king, so goes the people. That's the principle at work here. And a foreigner would not preserve Israel's unique identity. A foreigner would not promote Israel's unique vocation to be a light to the nations. In fact, the light would go out if a foreign king sat on the throne. Now, third, notice, notice the requirement of brotherly humility. This is perhaps the most important mark of a true king. Verse 15 says, the king must be one from among your brothers. And verse 20 goes on to add that after he becomes king, his heart must not be lifted up above his brothers. Notice the emphasis there on brotherhood. I wonder if you've ever if you've ever had somebody in your life that you just you love to be around. You know, they're a people person. In fact, everybody just enjoys being around them. But that individual at one point came to experience some success. Or got put in a position of authority and power over others, and suddenly everything was spoiled. Everything was ruined. You ever experienced that? It happens all of the time because nothing tears people apart like pride. And nothing unites the hearts of men together more than brotherly humility. Makes me think of uh, St. Crispin's Day speech from Shakespeare's play, Henry V. Although the English were hopelessly outnumbered and appeared doomed to die before the Battle of Agincourt. You remember Harry, uh, King Henry inspires uh, his fellow soldiers, his fellow men to go and fight with him largely because of how completely he identifies with them as a brother. And that's what makes his speech so powerful. I think it's one of the most rousing speeches in the entire Western canon And what makes it so powerful is this deep sense of brotherly solidarity that comes through when the king says, We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed were they not hear, and hold their manhoods cheap, whiles any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. Think about this. The reason I read that is so that we can think about it in the light of our Lord Jesus Christ just before the greatest battle of all time was fought on the night in which he was betrayed. The high king of heaven was deserted by all of his men, by all of his disciples. And even after winning the greatest victory in the history of the world, standing all by himself in power, Jesus' heart is still not lifted up above his brothers. That's exactly what Jesus calls his disciples. Even after his resurrection, even after the greatest success of all time, even after all power in heaven and on earth was given to him, he calls 
his followers, his brothers. You remember what he said to them? I am going to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. That's brotherly humility. Jesus does not look down upon us after his resurrection and ascension. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. And he will bring you to glory with him if you trust in this king. That brings us secondly to think about the rule of law in this passage, to think about the important theme of obedience in the life of the king. I think perhaps the most striking feature of the instruction concerning kings is the very fact that the king himself is subject to the law. He's not a legislator. He's not a law unto himself. But as God's chief executive, as it were, of God's law, the single greatest responsibility of the king over God's people is to do what? To obey. To obey. It's kind of counterintuitive. You know what the single greatest responsibility of the single greatest person in the history of the world is? Humble submission. Obedience to the Lord. And this begins with three incredible limitations that we see in verses 16 and 17 that are radically counterintuitive. Look at verses 16 and 17. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Uh, these, these three limitations which rule out the accumulation of war power, the accumulation of wives, a harem, and the accumulation of wealth really are revolutionary because this is simply what ancient despots did. It's what the kings were expected to do. Kings were expected to fight battles which required them to accumulate an army with horses, which were really the ancient equivalent of tanks or jet fighters, right? Horses were accumulated to power chariots, and these chariots were some of the most technologically advanced weapons of the day, of that time. So think about horses are, horses are tanks, horses are fighter jets. And kings were also expected to make political alliances, which involved them entering into marriage treaties with foreign nations in order to accumulate a harem which was designed to impress uh, foreign dignitaries when they came to visit the royal court. So this isn't just about lust and you know uh, the king's desire for sexual fulfillment, though I'm sure that was part of it, but even more pronounced in the accumulation of a harem in the ancient world was the issue of political alliances and the power that came through them as kings married into other royal 
families. It was a power grab, in other words. And of course, kings were expected to be fantastically rich, fabulously wealthy. This, this served to enhance the glory and the power and the prestige of their kingdom. This was the status quo. This is how kings were expected to operate. But all three of these just routine kingly activities are explicitly prohibited within Israel. That raises a bunch of questions, doesn't it? If the king isn't supposed to do any of those things, which all the other kings of the earth are busy doing, what's this king doing? What's his responsibility? How's he going to defend his people? How is the kingdom going to be built? How is the kingdom going to expand? How are the purposes of the kingdom going to be accomplished? If he's not going to accumulate these sources of power and glory and prestige, then what on earth does he do? (laughs) And how does his kingdom come? I hope your mind is running ahead at this point. Think of words like the words Jesus spoke to Pilate when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. So where does it come from? Well, at least part of the positive answer is found in verses 18 through 20. Simply put, the king is supposed to be what amounts to a biblical scholar, a man of the book. He's supposed to be someone who eats the book as his daily bread until it becomes a part of him so that he is equipped with the very truth of God to rule and reign with justice and righteousness. He is supposed to be, in other words, a living embodiment of Torah, of the teaching of the Lord. Have a look at verses 18 through 20 when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. It's astonishing. This is the only positive commandment codified in God's law concerning the king. It's amazing. The king was to write with his own hand a copy of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, just think about how long that would take you with a nice notepad and a ballpoint pen. It would probably take you the better part of a day. It takes about three hours to read through the book of Deuteronomy out loud. How long would it take to write down this book? Now go to the ancient world when you don't have the luxury of a notepad and a ballpoint pen. This would have taken a serious amount of time. And then after that, the king had to submit his copy of the law to be approved by the Levitical priests so that nothing was added and nothing was taken away that would have you know, shored up the power and authority of the king. But more than that, after writing it down, after it being approved by the the Levitical priesthood, the king was supposed to read this book day by day. He was supposed to eat this book as his daily bread 
to learn the fear of the Lord and to walk in the way of his commandments. He was to digest the book until it became a part of him so that he would rule over God's kingdom with righteousness, God's own righteousness and justice. As a king, think about it, it would have been tempting to get distracted. If you are a king over a kingdom, there's a lot on your plate. There's a lot going on. And it would have been very easy for a king within Israel to neglect reading the Torah for a day, for a week, for a year, for a generation, as happened at one point within Israel. But this is the only positive commandment concerning kings. He had to be a man of the book to do the will of the Lord. That is his job description. That's what the king of Israel is charged to do. And then we see in the story of King Solomon, I want us to think about Solomon together for a few minutes. We see how in the life and reign of King Solomon, all of these laws concerning kings were spectacularly violated and broken. Solomon was the most gloriously gifted yet tragically flawed king that Israel ever had. He was the wisest man, yet he died a fool. He He led Israel to the pinnacle of its political power and prestige, and yet the kingdom was divided as a result of his his reign. He, He built the temple in Jerusalem, and yet at the same time he set up altars to false gods. He was led astray by his many wives and concubines. His life was a magnificent failure because he specifically violated all of these laws, horses, wives, and wealth. You see, Solomon's story, it's a very human one, right? God God made Adam and Eve to be kings and queens. That's what it means to be a son and daughter of Adam and Eve, to be kings and queens. Solomon is depicted in the Old Testament as a new Adam. He's got a name for every kind of biological life. He names them just like Adam exercised royal dominion by naming all of the creatures, But he's a magnificent failure in the way that he broke all of these laws. Deuteronomy 16, 17 says that he must not acquire many horses. Don't go back to Egypt where I brought you out of. Well, 1 Kings 4, 26 says Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. 2 Chronicles 1, 14, Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And hear this, 2 Chronicles 9, verse 28, Solomon imported these horses from where? From Egypt. From Egypt. Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, you shall not acquire many wives. Well, Solomon's pretty infamous for his harem, isn't he? 700 wives and 300 concubines, and we're told that they led him astray. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold, and we're told that Solomon Solomon made silver and gold like stone within Israel during his reign. Now, if we don't know the law, if we don't know Deuteronomy, we can read those descriptions of Solomon's reign and think, wow, 
That is really impressive. That's incredible. But if we know Torah, if we know the law, then we understand God is not impressed. God is not impressed or pleased with this king's reign. There's a sense in which the the reign of Solomon represents the end of the exodus and initiates the beginning of the exile. On the one hand, Israel was never more settled in the land than they were under Solomon, who built the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, that's where the whole book of Deuteronomy is taking us, this crowning achievement of being settled in the land. The climax of the whole exodus is coming out of Egypt, entering into the land, building a sanctuary for God's name at the place that he will choose. That's where Deuteronomy is leading us. But on the other hand, Solomon's violations of God's laws concerning kings exposed Solomon and revealed him to really be another pharaoh. Another pharaoh who enslaved people and led the people back into bondage. He sets into motion everything that will lead the people of Israel eventually into exile and not allow them to remain within the land, but instead lead them into captivity. Now, in contrast to all of Solomon's spectacular violations of God's laws concerning kings, I want us to just reflect for a couple of minutes on how Jesus is the embodiment, the fulfillment of these laws. Unlike Solomon, think about it, unlike Solomon who accumulated countless war horses on the day in which Jesus went into the city of Jerusalem to reveal himself as the promised king, he went in on a borrowed donkey. Went in on a borrowed donkey. Didn't even belong to him when he traveled on the road into Jerusalem to reveal his kingship. Unlike Solomon who accumulated countless wives and concubines, Christ has a singular love for his one bride, the church. And marriage for this king is not a power grab. It's not about his prestige before the nations. It's about sacrificial love, laying down his life for this bride. As Paul says, Christ loves his one bride, the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And the wonder of the gospel, beloved, is that we have not led our king astray like Solomon's wives. Instead, he leads us into glory. Unlike Solomon, who accumulated unimaginable wealth and built himself a palace in Jerusalem, Jesus said, He had no place to lay his head. He who was rich for our sakes became poor so that by his poverty we might be made rich. So that we might share in his wealth. And perhaps most amazing of all as we consider this passage, even though Christ is 
the eternal word of God in the flesh. He relied upon, he depended upon the word of God written down. He ate this book. I'm personally convinced that Jesus had the book of Deuteronomy committed to memory because he knew who he was. And you remember at the beginning of his ministry when he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one, what did, Satan, uh, what did Jesus do? He, he drew the sword of the Spirit from the scabbard of the book of Deuteronomy. And he dealt death blows down upon the head of the serpent in quick succession. It is written, it is written, it is written, quoting the book of Deuteronomy again and again and again. And brothers and sisters, if the word of God in flesh turned to the written word of God in this book, then how much more should we? And as we wrap up reflecting upon this promised king, a very, very simple exhortation to all of us, and it's simply this. Receive this king. Bow the knee to this king and enjoy the rule of his law. He's a good king. He's, he's the king who calls us brothers. He's the king who lays down his life for his bride. He's a good king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. So let's fix our eyes upon him who's called in the book of Revelation. In a royal revelation, he is called the word of God. For on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So receive the gift of this king and live under his good rule. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your son. He was willing to humble himself and assume our flesh. That he was willing to identify with his brothers even to the point of death on a cross. And that he brings many sons to glory. Lord Jesus, we bow down before you this morning, our high king, and we pledge you our allegiance. We ask for the gift of, of the Spirit so that we would have power to obey you and that like the, the men of Israel who rose up with a great shout after seeing David slay the giant, we pray that in seeing your great victory over the evil one for us, that we would rise up this morning with a great shout and follow you. Make our boast in the cross and, and give chase even to the gates of Gath and to Ekron. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.